0: Thank you. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna talk to you today about how to um, how to rewrite your JavaScript application or um, if, if that's not something that you're, you're wanting to do, um, ten times at least, then maybe how to avoid that. So I'm gonna start with a premise that I hope you guys will agree with me on, um, which is the hardest problem in application development, uh, that being this dude right here. Um, when you start your, your application development, the blank editor window that stares you in the face and makes you question yourself as a human being and a developer and kind of throws you into some some worries. Um, because th- there are a lot of things to think about when you when you begin developing an application. Um, obviously you want to think about how you're gonna divide things up, what's going to what's going to go where and how is it all gonna work together. Um, you need to think about the the flow of the application, like where does it, where does it begin? and who's in charge of making sure that it begins and what do you need to pass in in order to make it begin. You wanna think about the tools that you're gonna be using in it. Um, if you're doing something somewhat niche, um, you might end up using um, third-party tools that, that you actually rely on very heavily, things that aren't just just nice to have, but are actually crucial to your application. And then obviously you wonder like whether you really know what you're doing. So the idea that is that, um, it's, it's actually fairly easy to write code. Like it, it's easy to write a for loop. It's easy to write an if statement. It's easy, it's easy to write all these things. The, the challenge comes in figuring out what you're gonna actually code. Like that's, that's the hard part and the thinking about it and all the planning that goes into it, that's what, that's what actually makes the coding so easy is the hard work that you do before you actually begin the coding itself. And we have a habit as developers and as businesses that employ developers even to to put a high priority on the coding and uh, not such a high priority on the planning that that comes before it that is necessary. And it's it's unfortunate because um, we actually, we we need to spend a lot of time planning in order to code effectively. So the biggest worry um, in all of this when you begin an application or when you begin rewriting an application is um, that you're going to be? You're going to end up doing the same work again. That everything you do, you're going to have to trash, and then you'll be back at that blank editor window. So you have an entirely different set of worries when you when you're rewriting something that already exists. Like this is this is the same intimidating ed- editor window, but now there's all this work that you did before that you're you've decided for whatever reason to to throw away, and uh, that that becomes a different set of challenges. First of all, you wanna know why you absolutely need to throw all this stuff away because you you don't wanna throw something away that's working, obviously, if you don't need to. So you wanna be very clear on what you expect to get out of a rewrite. Uh, You wanna have a good idea of what you wanna maintain in the current application, obviously, as well, and make sure that you don't end up regressing back to, to, um, to a state that you forgot that you had ever visited in the development of the previous application. Um, there's, there's always the concern that once you get in there and you start fixing this one big problem that you have with the existing application, you're gonna find a bunch of other little problems and like all those things that have bugged you like for a long time and end up uh, doing a lot of yak shaving. And then you know, there's the same concern that you really don't know what you're doing. Okay. But I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I have like some bulletproof solution to keep you from ever having to rewrite anything again. I I wish I could tell you that um, for my own purposes as well as for yours, but that 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 wouldn't be honest um, because you're going to end up rewriting things sometimes, and it's not always a bad thing. Like there are there are good reasons to to rewrite something. Certainly, um, you can you can write, rewrite things if if browsers change or if um, if you're on the back end if if node changes. Um, so that you can take advantage of that new stuff, and that's certainly a very good reason to rewrite something if you if you can get a big advantage um from whatever the n- the new thing is that's that's available. Um, if your business grows like much faster or much larger than you thought it would and you have scalability problems that you need to rewrite to address, like that's a good problem to have right. Similarly, if, you're, if your infrastructure changes, if you move from like a, a virtual private server to like your own rack in a, a data center, like that's great, like you have all this new stuff you can take advantage of, why not do it? Um, they, you, can, you can get to certainly a point where you have so many refractors stacked up that you want to do uh, tiny little things that you could do without rewriting everything that it makes more sense just to roll that into a rewrite. Um, I think that's, that's a pretty edge casey, but it could happen. Um, and I think the main reason, though, that we we end up in the in, in the position where we're like, okay, we absolutely want to rewrite this thing, is that this thing is pretty broken. And if we don't like, if we don't stop the bleeding right now, then we're going to we're going to be doing a lot more uh, troubleshooting and fixing of things than we would like to be doing, um, uh, creating features or whatever else we need to do uh, on our existing application. So the Counter to all that is the battery rate, which is the one we want to talk about avoiding today, which is where you have some percentage of your application already coded, and you're going along, and then you're like, you can go into some, some it it usually happens for me when I'm handling some error, and then I realize that I shouldn't be getting that error, and I should have done something to prevent getting that error, and I've actually written the entire application incorrectly. Um, But any scenario where you end up throwing out all of your work and going back to the empty editor window. So the bottom line is that we want to keep from having to start over and over and over and over. And that's not inevitable. Uh, There are things we can do to to mitigate that and uh, hopefully we can can do them all successfully and keep them all in mind so that we don't have to do the bad rewrites and trash all of our work. So, what I want to do now is uh, go through a completely unordered, um, and non-comprehensive uh, list of all the battery rewrites that I have personally been involved in, the things that we got some, some way down the road and then we're like, oh, this is, this is wrong. Um, and try to explain how that happened and what it taught me personally about avoiding that in the future. So the first one is when you start, you're, you're, you're sitting down to start developing your, your new application or rewriting your application and you're like, okay, this is awesome, we're gonna use framework X. And there's probably no reason not to use Framework X. That's an innocent enough thing to say, right? Um, you Hopefully the framework that you've chosen, you can find a lot of information about it online. People are excited about it. It's interesting. Um, perhaps it's something that somebody you work with has, has used successfully before, and they've been able to like knock out an application in a weekend because like it has all these bells and whistles and takes care of all that boilerplate stuff, and it's awesome. Um, Typically, the framework, one of the things it offers you is is some some concept of of an architecture, or not an architecture, but a pattern that you can use in your application. Um, And you can generally find a way to make that mirror what you already have in your existing application or your plans. Um, For instance, if it's MVC, you can look at your backend and be like, oh, hey, we have a data store here, and this data store contains tables or documents or whatever. And gosh, those look a lot like models, so check. We got one third of our application done already because we've already got models. And that's how that's how you know your mind can end up working. Same thing with event-driven architectures or whatever else. Like you, you can find a way to make it fit the pattern. So you start coding it, and you're like, you're coding up a model, and you're like, oh, this is great. Like I just do like a little bit of initialization stuff, and then the boilerplate takes care of the rest for me, and I'm just like extending it a little bit, and then I'm gonna like set a URL so I can do my my routing or uh, I can, I can sync to the server and that's awesome and then I just like extend the, the model object on the framework and that's great and this is super easy. And then you have to actually do stuff. Um, and that's where you, you can end up in a position where you find that you didn't maybe think this through as much as you thought you had. You have to figure out how to do state objects, and that's not part of whatever framework you've chosen. You have to do event handling, and that's not part of whatever framework you've chosen. And you try to look this stuff up in the documentation, and you find this this awesome, great-looking to-do application, but you're not writing a to do application, or at least you didn't think you were. Um, but the 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 trouble is that it leaves you with with all this stuff that you 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 aren't really getting answers for with the framework and you don't exactly know how to use the framework effectively in combination with the things you need to do. So, this is this is how frameworks work, right? Like they're they're not meant to solve all your problems. They're meant to solve easy problems that are common enough that they can provide effective boilerplate for them and ease that stuff over so that you don't have to you don't have to rewrite obvious stuff, but they're not meant to tell you how to write your entire application and they don't typically tell you how to organize your application unless they're, they're very opinionated. Even those, though, uh, at a certain point, rely on you to provide the organization for your own logic, the things that make your application your application. And so, what I've learned from this sort of mistake is that you should not choose your framework first. That's, that's what a lot of us tend to do. We tend to say, oh, we're going to write a backbone application. We're going to write an Angular application. You don't know what kind of application you're going to write until you've actually figured out what what it is that you're, that the application is going to do and all this other stuff about it and so i would propose to you that you choose your framework last instead of first okay so the kind of flip side of that is the second one which is when you say yeah that all these all these frameworks like they're they're kind of confusing and we don't really know what to pick so we'll just write our own um and this this can be very appealing like there's certainly a lot of charm in the idea of a hand-rolled framework that suits your application specifically and takes care of exactly what you need to do rather than you know a bunch of boilerplate stuff like why not just get right into it and you're going to know this code it's going to be all familiar to you because you've written it yourself so that's great and of course you know if there if there were things in in one of these frameworks that you didn't find yourself needing or like paths that you didn't want to go down or you wanted to combine different approaches like you can you can knock all that stuff out you don't have to include it and that's less less weight right so this is great you start you start writing your framework and you're like this is going to be so awesome and so you write an initialization function you provide all the boilerplate for initialization and that's super cool you put in a URL property and that's going to like provide routing and enable you to to sync with the server and what you've done is you've rewritten something that probably already exists. And it's, it's difficult to, to find something new under the sun that a problem that you're solving with, you, with your new bespoke framework that, um, that somebody else hasn't solved before. But the problem is that you're, you're writing it for yourself now so you have no obligation to maintain the same API. Or you can maintain the same API, but have it work just slightly differently. So that when you hire somebody new onto your team or somebody else has to support your code, they don't quite know what it's doing and there is no big to-do application for them to go and look at and try to figure out how, what it's supposed to be doing and there's no documentation, essentially. So the other problem is, of course, that it's not easy to write a framework. There's, there's a reason that, you know, tons of developers work on these, these open source projects. There's a reason that that they evolve over time, that they have versions. It's because this is this is not something you just like sit down on a weekend and like knock out. It, it takes it takes time to create good abstractions and good boilerplate that can be used by many many people, and it's not trivial. So this is a this is a fairly obvious thing, but um, I, I think it's the kind of thing that as developers we we sometimes um, find ourselves doing anyway, just because it's it's kind of fun and it's appealing in and of itself. But not when you have something to get done. When you need to write an application, your application, you don't want to be writing a second application or the equivalent amount of work, which is like what you're basically doing as soon as you decide that you're gonna write a framework. Um, So one application at a time is the the lesson that I've taken from trying to write uh, frameworks myself. Number three is um, the idea that you can't possibly start defining your API until you start coding things. And, this is uh, this is mainly because you know you just you don't know how the code's going to evolve and you don't know what the application's going to look like. You don't want to get yourself in a situation where you have to go through and make all these changes to to the assumptions that you had in your in your the API you out- outlined initially if you had done that, right? And then there's also the the idea that, you're going to use the API as a place to optimize things. Like, you you wanna make sure that you're not calling the server too often. You wanna make sure that if there's stuff that takes a long time to do, that you do that on the server. And um, if there's stuff that you have to do repeatedly, you do that on the client, right? All these considerations, and so you, how can you predict that without having written any code? So like, Example, let's say that you have, you have these three views and they all have to render, but um, you wanna render them all just a little bit differently. You wanna do different things with them, you know that part. And so you, you, you've got, a, you've got a, a concept of a render function, but for every, uh, for every render you wanna do just something a little bit different and this, this all concerns the server. So in the first case, you wanna go and get your data, and then you wanna populate a template that contains inline logic that's gonna say like how to, how to pluralize things, or how to um, what other kinds of conditionals that exist in the template. Uh, so all, all that logic, all that data transformation stuff lives within the template, and you're just getting the pure data from the server. The second one, you're gonna go and get the data from the server also, but in this case you want that data to be transformed for you on the server because you have, you have other things on the server that need that, that same logic. And then you're just gonna do the same thing. You'll stick it in your template, stick it in your HTML. But the third case is special. The third view is something that, that it takes a fairly long time to render, so you wanna get that all from the server. You wanna get the data already populated in the template and just stick the result into your HTML directly. And you get yourself in a situation where it's really hard to predict what your server is going to do. It's hard to predict what your render function does on the client now, in addition, and it you've 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 basically signed yourself up to create a brand new function for every view because you don't have anything in there that you can reuse. There's no clear way to abstract that out so that you can just have one render function that behaves the same way. And it's Again, there, there, there may be arguments for optimizing these things sometimes, but you probably want to figure out that out after the fact as an exception to an existing pattern, and so this doesn't give you the opportunity to, to create that pattern if you don't, if you aren't willing to decide on an API and decide how your API should work fairly early on. So. The lesson there is simple. An API is basically pretty easy to specify. And yeah, you might end up changing it, but you're not changing that much. I mean, really you're changing where it goes, what you pass it, and what you expect back in return. Like, those are not complicated things to change. The API itself, the definition of the API, doesn't really care about the client-side application or the server-side application. It's the point where they touch. And that's fairly simple. Like, that's not a lot of work to trash. Even if you, even if your assumptions were all completely wrong and you had to change the entire, the entire API that you would spec out, you don't lose that much. So it's it's a cheap way to try and figure out what your application is doing. So the fourth one is, again, the opposite of that, um, where you say, okay, that's everything Everything get really screwy like when we start passing things back and forth. So let's just say that if it isn't actually JavaScript, then we're just gonna do the whole thing in whatever our backend language is. And the, again, this can give you some great optimizations. Um, and certainly, you wanna have your static stuff on the server, you wanna have your dynamic stuff on the client, like that makes sense. And then everybody can write in their own language and everybody's more comfortable. So that's good, right? But you get into, you get into trouble, um, and one of my favorite examples has to do with templates. Um, so like, let's say that you have, you have this template on the server and it's an, it's an error template. What you currently do with it is, when somebody submits a request, um, some form or something, then you, you, you put that error into um, the template that you're returning and you send it back down to the client and it displays. Simple enough. But you determine that you actually need to use that on the client. You need the client to be able to render the, the error without having to go back to the server for the entire page. And so, Hey, I mean, it's a tiny little, it's a tiny little error thing. Like, it's like three lines of code. You're like, oh, we'll just copy this into, into JavaScript. So yes, we'll have the template in two places. Ooh, we're bad. But, um, but you do it because it's, it's, it's not very expensive, right? And then, you know, some time goes by. And you determine that, oh, you need to change some of the classes in this error template thing. And so you add some classes into the client side one, you add some classes into the server side one, and then you figure out that you need to have like a tooltip within it somewhere to explain some really uh, interesting details of the error. And so you need to be able to pop that tooltip up. So you need to add the, add the hooks into the, um, into the template itself so that you can create it. And then you need to create a way to register it um, on the server. Um, so the server has to like re- register it in a different way than the client which will register it within the flow of the client-side application. And eventually you get to a point where you're like, we should have just used the same template. We should have just figured out some way to be able to share this template because this is getting to be a pain in the butt. So the lesson that I have learned actually, probably more than any of the other nine that we're gonna talk about or we have talked about is that you have to plan everything in your application and that doesn't mean just JavaScript and it doesn't mean just the server side stuff. You need to plan your HTML, you need to plan your CSS because your CSS impacts your widgets. Like anything that you're doing that requires a high amount of interactivity, um, that's gonna be affected by your CSS. So all of this stuff is part of planning your application. It's not, it's not just templates, it's not just like resources. Um, it's, it's all something that you should be factoring into your architecture. Uh, the fifth one is when you you look at the DOM and you're like, oh, well this this doesn't work with our our web application. So um, what we're going to do is try to find a way around it. And there are there there are definitely a lot of inconsistencies in browsers. Like the DOM is unfortunately still not perfect, um, and there's that can lead you to writing a lot of extra code to like wrap around it and um, kind of make try to make things more consistent. And uh, you, even even when even when the spec sounds good like you might find that the actual implementation is not quite lining up in different browsers et cetera. like that's a problem and so it can be it can be kind of tempting to be like hey we're just going to throw all that stuff out and we want to write our own dom from scratch like we want to write our own our own widget that that supplants whatever the dom is normally doing in this situation and my favorite classic example would be the file uploader so like you You've determined that you need like a special cool file uploader, and um, you 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 like you you can you can do a lot of this cool stuff right now with with modern browsers. But you want to make sure you can do it everywhere. And, you know, just kind of do it once. Um, and so you're like, we'll just write our own. And so you you make a little place to select a file, um, and then you style it. You give it like rounded corners and make it orange and whatever. Um, you add progress events because that's that's always awesome. So the user can see like how long it's taking to upload their stuff, and then. You create some sort of like flash movie or something that that actually enables you to do that because you don't have you don't have access to these things across the board and all the br- browsers you want to support um, natively. And then um, you have to you have to do some other stuff because you you of course want this to work within your application right. And so you you create some sort of handler for it that's gonna uh, allow you to, to connect to the stuff in the, the little flash object that you have. And uh, you wanna be able to submit it as part of a larger form. You don't wanna have to just like, upload these things as one-offs. You wanna be able to like, use it within a form if that's, if that's what you need to do. So you add that stuff. And then uh, you figure out that, okay, that's not actually working for everybody as well as we thought. It's working for a lot of people, which is cool, but um, we need to be able to degrade it if, if um, for instance, Flash isn't available. So we'll, we'll fall back to just like a normal file upload if there's no Flash. And then we'll, we'll see if we have XHR2 so we can at least do the progress stuff. And then um, we'll, we wanna like change that around, like put some wrappers around all that DOM stuff so it matches the, the Flash thingy we wrote. And uh, then again, let it be used in a bigger form, et cetera. And th- this this used to be like totally reasonable because really browsers didn't used to move as fast as they did and we were not getting the powerful stuff that we have today. Um, th- now though, like it, 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 if it's if it's something that you've thought of doing and I don't want to like disparage anybody's ingenuity or anything, but if it's something you thought of doing and something that you've determined that your users need you to do, there's a pretty good chance that like somebody at a browser company is working on it already. Um, and the um, in the meantime, like while those things are getting developed, you have you have people creating polyfills. Like you have you have people already solving this problem in a very abstract way that you can go whose work you can go and grab, and like at least rely on that. And you know, possibly depending on the complexity of what you're trying to do, like the, how common the widget that you're trying to create is, there's probably somebody out there who's like made a little plugin that like does the orange orange corner rounded stuff, like transforms the. the whatever object it is that you're you're working with into whatever you want it to be or at least gives you access to do so yourself. So, if it's not your job to make widgets, if you don't sell widgets, then probably it's not a great investment of your time to be rewriting the DOM. And this goes back to the idea that you only want to write one application at a time because this sort of thing can get, can get very involved and it, it involves a lot of testing, it involves a lot of other work that probably isn't getting you any further with your application, especially because most applications do not tend to be primarily interaction-driven, and some are, and they're cool. And like maybe in those cases, you are actually in the widget business. But if it's a if it's a standard like web application with like a login and like some forms and stuff, like probably it's not a good use of your time. Okay, so the sixth one is um, trying to balance um, what you're what, what you're getting via XHRs with what you're getting in your HTML. And what I mean by that is you start thinking that hey, we're already getting all this HTML anyway, right? And we have all this data on the server, which is where the HTML is coming from. So let's put the data in the HTML. Um, we have like lists of things, and we don't know how many things we're going to have. We don't know whether we're ever going to need them. So let's put all the information about those things in in attributes um, on the the uh, DOM elements themselves. Um, similarly with internationalization. Similarly with hey, your entire application state. This is uh, not something I've, I'm, I'm making up. Um, being able to like, tr- tr- take your, the state of the application as it comes down from the server, put it in a bunch of meta tags in, in the top of the page and get it that way. And that, that sounds really cool at the beginning because you're like, hey, we're gonna initialize this stuff and we don't have to pass anything in. We don't have to figure out like, if, if there's some, uh, some object that we've already passed in that's like, been hard-coded into the JavaScript. And, um, we, we just we just go and get this stuff from the page. We'll go, go select the necessary nodes, and we'll find their attributes, and then we'll assign those to data types, and yay. And that's cool until, of course, something changes, and then when something changes, then you have to go and find those nodes again, um, and then you have to set the attributes so that they line up with whatever changed uh, in your data, in your application. And then you wanna send that back to the server so it's consistent. So you send it back to the server and then if you get some sort of error then you wanna like, whoa, roll back, find the nodes again, set their attributes back to what they were before so you've, um, you're assuming that you've maintained the, the state of whatever they, whatever they were initially before you changed them and blah, 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 and et cetera. Um, the DOM is not a good place to do that. The DOM is a bad place for your data. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of painful to first of all just go through and be selecting objects all the time in order to get your data, it's kind of nat- not natural. It, it's messy and fragile, you're relying, relying on selectors and the hierarchy of, of the elements in your page. Um, obviously you're, you're violating dry because um, in addition to In addition to having the the data that you're using within your application, now you have to maintain it, again, within within the HTML elements, or they're they're gonna get out of sync, and then if you have something that that relies on the HTML elements, which is what you've set up your application to do, then you won't be getting accurate information anymore. But mostly it just doesn't give you anything you can work with. Like, you have the opportunity to pass down whatever you want from the server, and you're sending yourself HTML, which is not what you need. That doesn't seem like um, the, the, the best way to plan that. So, give your data a real home, and I I can think of probably other examples of, of ways that people try to get around like actually using data as data within their application, so that they can they can kind of get a two for one um, when they when they mostly when they initialize things. Um, but the bottom line is that you should be separating your data out and using it as data, recognizing it as data from the get go, so that you can you can then put it in your objects and your your client your uh, your client side application can use it. Uh, the way it's meant to be used. So the seventh one is when you're like, "Hey, we've got some 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 weird uh, piece of logic or some some strange uh, task that we need to do, and there's there's a plugin that gets us like part of the way there, or there's a module or whatever. And certainly, you don't want to go around reinventing the wheel. So this is pretty appealing, right? Because there's, there's all this open source work, and it's great, and people have, have contributed to it. Uh, most importantly, they've vetted it for you, so you already know that other people are using this successfully, and it's worked for some people. Um, and it's easy to think that maybe, hey, as long as it gets us part of the way there, that's better than none of the way there, so so why not like, stand on these people's shoulders and try to move ourselves further along? So you have like some very important function, and you need to pass something into it. You make it a, a jQuery object, and then you you uh, have this plugin that you apply to it, and then um, now you now you get some sort of event event back from the plugin, which is what you needed. And so when you get that event, then you can do your really important function or your super important function. And then in your super important function, um, you can you can do the the main thing that you need, which is to get this important value back from the plugin. Um, and then you have to do a bunch of other stuff too. You like you have to you have to add some special state that's unique to your application, and you have to remove the weird funky uh, Class that the the plugin adds to itself. Um, you need to append some of your own markup that you have somewhere in the somewhere else um, to some part of the plugin, um, and then you, it's it's adding some weird button. You need to disable that, and you're you're kind of finding that this is all a nightmare. So you you don't want to do that anymore. So you go back into the plugin file itself, and you you just modify it because you're tired of doing this every time like some event happens or some other situation occurs. So you want it to just work the way you want it to work, and so you change the plugin. And now what you're doing is, not writing a whole new application, but writing a whole new plugin, because you're not actually um, in control of what you had initially, and uh, you're, you're having to create your own plugin essentially around that. Um, initially, additionally, that might get that original might get abandoned, and so then, then you really will be in charge of the plugin because there will be nobody else working on it with you. So that would be fine, I guess, but as soon as you start doing this, you're not getting a lot of value from whatever you originally downloaded. And figuring that that out too late really sucks because then you've written everything, you know, to the API of this this plugin that you only kind of halfway like and you you have a bunch of code that you essentially need to rip out because you could have written your own thing that would do exactly what you needed and nothing more, nothing you'd have to screw around with. And um, that would have saved you a lot of time in the long run. So you don 't want to use external tools that that get you close to doing something or that like sort of do things you like, but then sort of do things you don 't like don't 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 go grabbing external tools because you think that they're going to get you further further along um, than you could get on your own because if as soon as something does something that you don't want there's there 's some undesirable aspect to it it 's not super granular and atomic and like just fits into your your application making it fit into your application is probably not worth the trouble and can lead you back to a a place where you have to rip it out and then you're rewriting. So the eighth way is to get yourself thinking that um, because you have a framework and that framework has some sort of pattern, um, you don't need dependency management. And I, I think that this comes from the idea that like when you when you grab your framework, you don't see it using dependency management um, in its in its examples or like in its files or whatever. I, I think that's where this comes from. I'm kind of postulating. Um, I've I've done this too, um, and I, I can't say what I was thinking at the time. Um, but anyway, I, I think um, you you get this idea in your head that but since you you have like this one big controller or something you have you have this one main file and you know where everything's going to start and you know what's happening there so you know what the dependencies are already you can you can just sort of concatenate things send them down to the client and you're good to go um, if 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 the issue of like a dependency loader comes up um, you already have some sort of framework thing that's like doing your your loading stuff that's like taking care of your calls to the server and so you can rely on that like it's it's not a big deal if it's into your application and then, um, you know, if, if, if it gets really slow, then you can cut out another JPEG or something like that. Like, you've, you've heard good advice on this, so you're like, you're fairly confident that it's not gonna be a big issue. So you have like some big controller. It's got a big view that renders everything on your page. Um, and uh, you get into trouble, because you, you, uh, you put that render everything function in a different file, um, and you forgot to load that one before loading your big view. And so you have to change the order of that. And then you've got, um, you want to be able to refresh, refresh the entire view, so you want to be able to pass a Boolean into the controller. And uh, if, if you need to refresh it, then you want to uh, set the data on the view before you render it. Oh, but you're, you're using a global to do that um, because it just made sense, because that, that's like the data for the entire application, so you wanted it to be available to everything, um, but you forgot to define it in one of these cases. So you need to make sure that the data is available, and then if it's available, then you want to set it. If it's not available, then you want to go back to the server, be like, "Give me that data, please," and uh, then set the data, and then render it. And then you get an error. Uh, if you, if you guys look back at this, um, you can probably see what what the real error would be. Um, but basically, you need to obviously move all the logic now into that handler for um, the XHR so that you can you can do it after the, the data is actually loaded. So if you don't have modularity, you can get a lot of messy code, basically. Um, and that that probably sounds like every AMD talk you've ever heard, but I, I think that's what it boils down to. Um, you certainly don't want to be relying on globals or subglobals like that that it's it's cool, they're like easily accessible, but like it would be just as just as easy to access them by passing them into things as dependencies. Uh, it, it ends up, it puts you in a situation where you have to keep testing to see whether things are available. You're not ever really sure what's available. Um, if you're in a situation where you can, you can load something faster than something else or something can load before something else or it can run before something's fully loaded, etc. It would be much nicer to just have a clear contract with the, the module that says, I will, I will expect you to load all these things for me. Um, and every time you come, you hit some edge case or you want to add something or whatever, you have to go and re-examine that whole chain uh, of, of the dependencies that you're loading in order in a in sort of fragile way to make sure that you're going to load things when you need them loaded. Um, and similarly, if you want to do, do actual dependency loading on the client or something else like that, you can't abstract that out. There's no nice... nice uh, File that you can, or a nice program that you can offload that to. You have to take care of it yourself and go and fetch like things like templates or things like CSS files that you want to swap in. All of those you have to do manually. So just save yourself some time and assume everything will be a module. Did a very big rewrite that I never finished. Um, just to add require to everything, and it's not as easy as just wrapping everything in require. It's it's more complicated than that because you actually change the way you think about your code. You change the way you think about what's available when and uh, it's it's not trivial to go back and add it later, so you should add it from the get-go. Okay, so the ninth one is when you have your existing application, your existing application contains something really terrible and you're like, hey, this, this tool or this framework or this whatever works with that terrible thing, so yay. Um, and this is, sounds like a way to limit your risk, right? Because you, you, you can uh, save yourself some time, uh, save, save yourself some, some code that you would have to rewrite and just focus on the things that, y- that you actually wanted to improve. Um, and all, all of the work that went into your original application, you can, um, you can reuse again. So you've got like, some old function here and it like, takes the output of your terrible thing, transforms it, renders it, observes it, and you had to write all the modules to do that and it was a huge pain. And so you grab a new framework that works with your terrible thing and then you can transform that output natively within the framework and then render it and observe it. And you don't really get a lot from this. Like the problem is that when you go in with an assumption that you wanna preserve something in your, in your original application, then that's something that you're not improving. And over time, uh, especially if it's a large application, you can end up um, basically just rewriting the same thing and not doing a whole lot to, to, to change what, you, what you're getting out of it. Um, And the real problem with this is that then you get done with that, you realize how much it looks like the old one, and then you're like, man, we need to rewrite this. So just throw out all your assumptions. When you begin a rewrite, like, if you've already determined you need to rewrite something, throw out all the assumptions about how things are going to work. Definitely keep the whys, like, all the... All the user cases and all that stuff, like all the all the th- the things that you need to maintain that are the actual behaviors of the application, but everything about how it works, like just trash all that and like see if you can start from scratch as much as possible because that way you can hopefully get a lot more value out of the fact that you're rewriting the whole thing. Okay, the tenth one, tenth and final one, is like we found this really awesome thing. What can we use it for? So there are, there are a lot of really awesome things out there on the internet. Um, and if you pay any attention to Twitter or Hacker News, you'll find tons of them, probably every day. Um, and they've got, they've got a lot going for them. They've got a lot of nice features. They're, you know, they're fast, they're modern, great communities, good documentation, and that's, that's all well and good. Um, it, it means nothing if they don't solve your problem. And that's, that's an easy thing to forget. Like, that sounds really obvious when I say it, I'm sure, but it's easy to forget if you haven't taken the time to define your problem. And I don't mean just like just saying, "Oh well, the user needs to be able to access their account, obviously they need to be able to access their account, but that is not a definition of the problem that is that is a very general you know page in your application. Um, you have to actually break that down into into all the pieces of what that means what happens when they access their account what if they're not logged in what if you know their account's suspended, et cetera and you you need to break those things down further into, into points. Like, what's gonna happen when, when I click this link? What's gonna happen when I click this tooltip? What happens if I'm on an old browser? All of this stuff like needs to be thought through like to a degree that um, is, is perhaps a little insane, but like, if, you re- if you really wanna figure out if you need to use something, the best way to do that is to have a very clear definition of your problem that like goes, goes well beyond just like your, your classic user story. As a user, I wanna do some cool thing and use this widget. Um, and you, you want to help yourself avoid solutions that are irrelevant to what you actually are trying to do. So, uh, I've been asked a number of times to, to proof of concept something like, we've, we've gotten to talking about whatever it is, some tool, and then the proof of concept has ended up being, oh, I can prove that this works because I installed it and in it ran. Or I can prove that it works on our server. Or I can prove that it can be scripted with JavaScript. And like, these proof of concepts don't solve anything. Um, really to to prove the best way to prove of concept something is to to figure out if your application actually needs it, and then you know hopefully you can rely on, it, rely on its community and the reputation it has on the internet to to figure out that yes it will work for you okay so that 's the end that 's the end of the examples, but I hope you will agree with me that none of those sound like particular de- particularly desirable things to have none of that stuff is um, something that we want more of in our application. But, again, none of these are uncommon. Like, uh, it's, it's not just me. I've, I've, I've had colleagues who have done all of those things as well. Um, I've had peers and friends. Uh, the, the, these are not like things I just made up and pulled out of thin air. They're, they're real things that happen in the real world all the time, all around you. Because it's, it's really hard to avoid rewriting com- completely. Like There are all these things that we do as developers and all these sort of like Achilles heels we have when it comes to being able to think about our own code critically um, that th- make us really susceptible to, to like, going down rabbit holes like these. But hopefully you can avoid doing it more than once. Hopefully, if you start doing it, you start with a, a bad rewrite, something that's going to be a bad rewrite. Um, hopefully you can catch yourself and then be like, oh yeah, have to be more rigorous about this, like, have to really make sure that I I think this stuff through. So, you need to plan your rewrites, essentially. Um, Not just plan what you're going to rewrite, plan the rewrite itself. You need to figure out if you have the resources, meaning the developers and the hours in the day. Um, You need to, again, define your problems, define them to an insanely, like, detailed level. Make sure that you have regression tests. the most important thing is make sure that you actually want to commit to doing the rewrite and all the planning and all the work that that's going to involve. Because there's, another, there's a, another thing that I left off that list, which is, the I would say, the, the main, first and foremost way to, to rewrite a lot, and that is, that is getting cold feet halfway through it. So don't, don't you, you need to commit to that stuff. Um, you, you can't expect that it's gonna happen immediately, it's gonna take a lot of time. Um, don't expect to be able to iterate because if you start like trying to pull out pieces of your application and just rewrite that and keep everything atomic, you're gonna, again, do the same thing where you end up rewriting, writing the same application because you haven't actually changed the architecture, you've just changed it in chunks. Um, failing fast, do not fail fast. Uh, that's, what, that's what your application's for, that's what product, for. Like, when you're developing a product, it makes sense to fail fast. You want to you wanna figure out if something's going to work um, really early on and then abandon it if it doesn't. This, isn't, this is not product planning. This is essentially a lot closer to computer science. Like, you have a working product. You know what the product needs to do for the users. You need to figure out how to make the code better. And that doesn't take, that doesn't take proving. That takes thinking and planning. Um, and then the bottom line is really that you don't want to put your fingers on the keyboard until you have that plan in place. And essentially what I'm saying is um, this is not rapid application development. It's it's something completely different. So don't don't get confused. Don't think about all those rapid application development lessons you learned whenever in startup school. Um, Just uh, ignore all that stuff. Because you have to have a plan you can commit to, which is sort of the opposite of rapid application development, or it isn't a good plan. And all that's going to keep you from getting to 10 rewrites is essentially a good plan. So, that's it. Thanks.
1: That was great. Um, I think all of us watching uh, were like, wow, Like everything that you're saying are these things, these problems and mistakes that I've run into. And so, everyone kind of empathized with all those challenges. <laughs> that was a really good summary of all, all that pain. Um, few questions. First up, uh, well, this one's a bit practical, um, which is, yeah, I go for it. Um, how would you embed, uh, what is your proposal for basically shipping down data with HTML um, of potentially making use of data attributes, or how do you feel about throwing JSON in a data attribute um, but kind of delivering it in the same request?
0: In the same in the same request I think that's okay wait so in, in the same request is great like like Twitter does that right they like they they throw yeah. down the the HTML all rendered and then they also have like just a JSON object that is just a JSON object yeah. like that's cool like yeah. as long as it like as long as you're keeping it in like JSON or something I would yeah. say but I'd, if it's like if it's data about the HTML like sure like put it in a data attribute but if it's data about like some object in your JavaScript in your client-side application, I would say that you should probably find a way to make it JavaScript.
1: Yeah. One one confusing thing about the Twitter, uh, uh, the web Twitter UI is, yeah, they send down these enormous JavaScript objects, and then I think they even have HTML inside of the JSON object, which is inside of a data attribute. (laughs) So, like, you'll be viewing source, and you'll be seeing HTML, um, and then you're, like, trying to edit it, but then you realize that it's actually, like, a big JSON object, and you get really confused really quickly. Um, but, yeah, they've spent a lot of time on that. Um, so you talked a little bit about uh, making use of you know, established widgets so that you don't run into you know, all the edge cases that they've already handled. Mm-hmm. When would you advocate rolling your own solution?
0: <laughs> um, I, I, uh, I, I guess when there's, there's nothing else out there. Um, like there's literally no no library you can build off of, um, and the the browser implementations are still fragmented enough that um, that you you can't make them line up, and uh, and you really you really need a solution that is solid in order to get your work done. Um, we we talked a little bit about this at the party. Um, I'm actually doing considering doing something very similar at work because we have to deal with content editable and there's, there's really not a lot out
1: there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One question uh, that was asked was, and and this is something that you hear a lot, uh, depending on frameworks, there's a fear that depending on frameworks and a concern that um, you don't learn the basics. People know Angular instead of knowing JavaScript. Um, And you know, Three years ago, it was knowing jQuery instead of JavaScript. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that something that, that you're concerned with, or how do you feel about that?
0: I I don't think I mean I I'm not concerned about it personally. I think it, if it gets you there, like if it gets you to to feeling more comfortable with JavaScript, awesome. And if you can produce something, then you're going to feel more comfortable with JavaScript and feel like you've got this. And hopefully, then go back and like yeah, learn the framework. I mean, I'm definitely not concerned about it from in this context.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question uh, about templating. You actually uh, you made this really fantastic template chooser web app. Uh, yep. You can like, go in, you answer a bunch of questions about like, what your templating needs are, and it basically filters down about 20 or so templating libraries and indicates which kind of meet your criteria. Um, what, what is your recommendation for, for having a templating solution that spans client and server?
0: Um, we'll use node if you can um, <laughs> if that's not a possibility like mustache has like a, a variant for like every every template or every um language. language under the sun yeah. but the the only problem with those is that like a lot of the time like you start dealing with your your data and then like you you run into the way that different languages deal with the data itself and like so you have to use data in a, in a very simple way and you have to have your data all transformed if you want if you want to Share between two languages.
1: Yeah, I think there was actually, there was, uh, somewhat recently, there was like a, um, a bug in the mustache implementation for Ruby where it was, oh no, it was um, some YAML, it was a YAML library in Ruby and it was a security issue. Um, but yeah, I can understand uh, different implementations across languages. Uh, what templating library do you use?
0: <laughs> I like, I still like Dot. Um, dot? Dot, yeah. Um, but there's there's a really cool one um, that I'm keeping an eye on. It's called uh, Nunjux. It's based on
1: Nunjux.
0: Nunjucks, yeah. Nunjucks. Yeah. Wow. But nunchucks, but it it, it it provides like a wrapper around the template, so it's more than just the, the template, it's like all the, the stuff that goes with it, like the um, like the transformation logic and like things Whoa. like to some extent. Like I'm I'm hazy on like how much of this is like stuff that it actually does and how much of it is my fantasy of like a perfect template engine. But yeah. It yeah. does it does more stuff.
1: Cool. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Garen. This was great. Um, Thank you. Yes.